All right, if you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis chapter 1. And I, I have to confess, anytime, like, I'm right here in the Bible, it's annoying because my Bible won't stay open. Do you guys run into that at all? I was complaining about that in Sunday school this, this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 1 this morning. Whenever I was in high school, um, my, my aunt was coaching her little girl's four- and five-year-old soccer team. So she came to me and said, hey, Philip, would you be willing to be the assistant coach? And I was like, yeah, of course. Like, how, how hard can four- and five-year-old girls' soccer be? That should be fine. Let's, I don't know anything about soccer, but it's not. You kick a ball, right? It can't be that hard. Yeah, you know where that one's going. Dude, like, so our, our first game, right, you got one girl that just, she drinks so much water, she just, like, throws up on the field, like, right there. You got one girl that stops running and then just has, like, a throw-herself-on-the-ground meltdown, like, wailing like her arm has been torn off and, like, stop the game, run out, is everything okay? I stepped on a ladybug, and you're just like, poor ladybug? I'm, I'm sorry. You got you girls flying around like airplanes, and like picking grass and throwing it at one another. And, and yeah, like that's our team. That's what we have to work with. And the other guy, the, the other team, like you could tell this guy was ex-military and he has all his girls like lined up in a perfect circle around him with their jerseys tucked in and matching cleats and they're doing like stretching exercises and saying hoorah and counting out loud and stuff like that. Any guess on who won that game? Joke's on you, we didn't keep score because someone might get their feelings hurt. If, so. But if you were wondering, they definitely scored more points. Like, it was pretty, pretty clear. Why? Because our team was in complete chaos and disarray, like the entire, the entire game. And their, their team was ordered, and they knew what they were doing and, and how to do it. And so I ask, who do you think won? Because then with that, we can say order beats chaos, right? We, we know that's true. Uh, teachers, there's a lot of teachers in this room. You know that's true. You spend hours of your day separating kids and changing seating charts and doing anything and everything you can to try to create order in your classroom because there's always this, uh, we, we call it in science world, they call it entropy, that things navigate towards chaos. That's, that's kindergarten 101, that the class is always navigating towards chaos if you don't bring order to it. Any of you teachers feel that way? Um, or this is why I'm thankful that uh, Wayne practices with the band on, on Sundays and, and Wednesdays. Because could you imagine one Sunday Dalton counts us off and then every single band member plays something different? Like different chords. It's, it's not going to sound good, right? You need order for harmony. You need order for, for learning. You need order for success. You need order for, for life. Life demands order. So for the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about how our God is a life-giving God, and how that calls us to be a life-giving church. And that's what we've been doing with this display up here. If you've not been, let me just kind of tell you, uh, every one of these is representative of one of our five core values that we're trying to work at and achieve as a church this year. Um, and so green is life-giving, that we want to be a life-giving church. Red is gospel-rooted. We believe we can only be life-giving through the gospel, which gives life. Uh, white is spirit-filled. Blue is community, and orange is belong. And so we're going to kind of focus up on those things, and we're inviting people, uh, whoever you are. If you have a story where First Baptist has just fulfilled one of those roles in the last week or so, and you want to celebrate that, come up during the invitation or after the church service and, and move one of those marbles. Um, but what we're going to be doing throughout the year is we're going to take each one of these five things and we're going to break it down in detail and talk about what that means. So for the next four weeks to the month of February, we're going to be talking about how our God is a life-giving God. And what does that mean that God is a life-giving God? And what does that mean for us then to be a life-giving church? And I think a lot of times we'll say that, right? We'll say God is a life-giving God. 
And, and for many of you, if you've been raised in church, that's nothing new. Like, yeah, I knew that. But we never really talk about how God is life-giving. Or if we talk about how God's life-giving, we just, like, assume, well, yeah, God's life-giving because he created the world, I guess. Like, that's, but there's way more involved than that. In fact, Genesis 1, I think, tells this incredible story of how God is life-giving. And I think, as we get into Genesis 1, uh, I'll go ahead and give you the answer to how I think God is life-giving. God's life-giving, or, or God's giving life, has to do with bringing order to chaos. So, so here's kind of that main point, if you want to fill in the blank, it's this. God gives life by bringing order to chaos. Now, that, that might sound weird at this point, may seem somewhat different to you, but I think it'll make sense once we read through Genesis 1 together and, and get an idea of that. So let me just kick us off. I'm going to read through Genesis 1 and the opening verse of Genesis 2, and then we'll start to build into that and talk about what it all means. This is a passage many of you are very familiar with, so, so enjoy it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, first day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the waters under the expanse and the waters above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the, let the earth produce vegetation seed-bearing plants and fruit trees, and the earth bearing fruit, and the seed in it according to their own kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegeta vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kind, and trees bearing fruit, and seed on it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, then morning, the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky that will separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and for days and years. They will be the lights in the expanse of the sky to provide for light to the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day, the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on earth, to rule the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, then morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas. Let the birds multiply on earth. Evening came, then morning the fifth day. And God said, let earth produce living creatures according to their kind. Livestock, creatures that crawl, the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. 
God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every living creature that crawls on the earth. And God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth, and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every living creature that crawls on the earth. Everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made was very good indeed. Evening came, then morning, the sixth day. So the heavens and the earth were, and everything in them were completed. I know that's, that's a lot of text, but we're going to break, break that down. So I think, if I were just being honest, part of what we miss out on a church when we normalize Genesis 1 is Genesis 1 is weird. Right? Do you guys read that and think, like, this is weird? Uh, you're talking about the expanse of the waters separated and there was water. In the... That's weird, right? None of us think about it that way. What's, what's going on? And so what I want to try to do today is tackle Genesis 1 in a way that will help us to understand what exactly is happening. So here's, here's what we're going to do. By the way, uh, Pastor David made this. He helped me set this up, so notes are going to be totally different today. Uh, you, you don't, you've already written all the words you have to write today. You can draw pictures from now on, so if you want to draw pictures. Feel, feel free to draw pictures with us. Um, if you don't want to draw pictures, you can write words too. That's fine. But yours is just going to be more boring and that'll be okay. Uh, Pastor David is awesome for making this, by the way. So, so thankful for him working on it. Uh, we're going to start off on that left-hand side and talk about just the order of this, this passage, breaking it down, trying to understand it. And then we're going to go into the six days and, and break those down as well. So let, the first thing we need to do is we need to determine the framework of the story of Genesis one, so, so obviously there's the whole six-day creation story. That's only a part of Genesis 1, though. There, there's some more foundational stuff. There's brackets at play here. So start out in chapter 1, verse 1. This is that classic, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now take, take that idea, jump over to chapter 2, verse 1. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. So, so what's going on here in Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis 2, 1 is it's setting this bracket Genesis 1-1 is the title statement. So if I could paraphrase it in a way, I would say something along the lines of, you know, this is the story of how God created everything. That's what Genesis 1-1 is saying. This is how God created everything that we know. So the heavens and the earth. This is the story. Genesis 2 is going to come in and say, this is how God created everything we know. This is the story. It's a beginning bracket and an end. The beginning and the completion. That when God creates the earth, he doesn't create lacking anything. He doesn't create it in need of anything. Once he is finished, he completes it. It is completed. The cap is on it. He has made it exactly how he's intended to. It is complete and perfect. You, you tracking along with me there? Chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then we get to chapter 1, verse 2. And this is where we're going to spend a bulk of our day just kind of breaking down because Genesis 1, 2 it's weird. I, I can't think of any other phrase for it. It's just a weird verse, okay? Um, but it's the tone setter. There, there's so much in Genesis 1-2 that's setting the tone, not just for the six-day creation, but it's setting the tone for the rest of the Bible, that all of this stuff is starting to unfold. So there's, there's three sentences involved in Genesis 1-2. By the way, this is, I was doing this with Sunday school this morning. Um, any guesses how many words are in Genesis 1-1? It's the Hebrew number that's representative of perfection or completion. Seven, yeah, there's, there's seven words in the first line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the second verse is going to have three sentences or three parts. Now the earth was formless and empty, that's one. 
How many words do you think is in the Hebrew with that? Seven. Um, Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. That's two. Any any guesses how many words? Seven. Um, And then this third verse. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Any guesses how many words are in that third, third kind of thing? Seven. I say all that just to say, guys, like, Ancient literature is, is we, we get this, this idea sometimes that people back then, they were just dumb. Like, they didn't really, this is beautifully sculpted. Like, this is, this is immaculate. It is amazing how well written Hebrews, or Genesis 1 is in the Hebrews. Like, do you, do you know how many times God says something is good in this passage? Seven. How many days are there? It's, do you see this theme of perfection, completeness? Our God made it perfect. That's all over the text. But, Let's break these three sentences down because they're each telling us a story as it builds into it. It starts out, verse 2, the start of verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Those are two words that uh, I think we miss in our English translations a lot. Uh, In Hebrew, it rhymes. Uh, The Hebrew for formless and empty is tovu vavohu. Isn't that a, you say that one out loud, tovu vavohu? That was good. All right, we got like six of you that said tovu vavohu. Um, Here's, here's what's going on when we say tovu vavohu. The idea is unordered and uninhabitable. Um, and so in passages like Job chapter 6, verse 18, uh, the, the book of Job mentions that if a caravan gets too far off the path, they end up in tovu, and, and they're going to die out in tovu, right? Is, have you guys ever been to White Sands? This is, this is what White Sands communicates. If, hey, if you get too high up over the dunes and you get lost and can't find the road, you're going to be in a bad position. Because you can't live out there. There's no way for life. It's wild. It's waste. It's unordered. It's uninhabitable. So, so Genesis 1-2 is saying, hey, before creation starts to be organized, before God starts to do things, creation is in this state of tovu vavohu. It's unordered. It's formless. It's void. It's uninhabitable. And that, that's weird to us, right? Because we don't, we don't think about nothingness in that way. But let, let me do a couple things first that I think will kind of attune us to an understanding. You've got to remember, when Genesis 1 is being written, are there other civilizations in the world? Absolutely. You read about them in the Bible, Egyptians, Canaanites, Mesopotamians, Sumerians. There's other, there's other people. And guess what all of these people have? They all have their own story of how the world came to be. Now, all of these, all of these people groups and all these ethnicities, they're polytheistic. They believe in multiple gods. They're, they're pagans, right? We... we We don't believe any of their stuff to be true, but they still have things that are written about how creation started. So let me just read to you some of the stuff. This is from uh, the, it's called the Egyptian coffin text. You can look it up. This was a text that was found in an archaeological dig on a coffin in Egypt. Um, And it's their their story of how the earth came to be. So their chief deity, Atum, speaks, and he says this, I developed from the waters on the great occasion of my floating that happened to me. I am the one who began there in the water. It's really weird to us. I get that. Here's all it's saying. Their chief deity, Atum, is saying, hey, there was a bunch of water, and I was like an egg, and I floated up out of the water, and that's how I came to be. That's, that's how Egypt thought of their chief deity, is that he just came out of the water. Um, uh, the Enuma Elish, this is the Babylonian creation narrative. It says this, when the sky above did not exist and the land beneath had not come into being, there was fresh water and salt water. It deifies those two things. There's a freshwater God, a saltwater God, and they, they mix in together to create the other gods. That's, that's the Mesopotamian creation story. That's weird, right? You guys agree with me that that's weird? Okay, good deal. I just want to make sure you're on the same, same page as me. But all of those, these religions, 
they envision that before creation ever existed, what existed? Some sort of chaotic water. That that's what's existing. So Genesis, Genesis 2. Now the earth, or Genesis 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. It was tovu vavohu. Then what do they say next? Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. Again, we'll, we'll do a little bit more Hebrew play. This is the word tohom. It's the word that's representative of chaos waters. And this is, have you guys ever been on a cruise at night and went and looked out over the ocean? Is that not at least a little bit unsettling? There's just this like pit of black abyss and you don't know how deep it is. There's, there's waves that are hitting the boat. You don't know what kind of animals are down there. It's, it's chaos waters, right? Can you drink ocean water? Is it good for life? No, you can't do that, right? It's, it's chaotic. There's, there's no way that you can live on ocean water or live in ocean water. It's not going to be possible for humanity. It moves and like, what's, what's making it move? Think, think of in the mind of like an ancient person. It keeps hitting the land. And so all these other religions are going to say, hey, our gods came out of that. A tomb developed out of that. Or the salt water and the fresh water mixed and created uh, the, the gods in some form or fashion. What does the Bible say? That Does God come out of this water? No, look, look at the third sentence. So there's this to home, watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Israelites do not see their God as being produced by anything. Yahweh is the unproducible. He is the creator, the uncreated one, the one that exists outside of the waters. Do you see the claim they're making? Our God is much bigger than the chaos. Our God is much bigger than the deep abyssal waters. Our God hovers over it. And furthermore, if you take a chance to read this again in Hebrew, when the Spirit of God is hovering over the Tehom, at the end, the last word of chapter or 1, verse 2, no longer is watery depths. In English, it's just surface of the waters. So one more Hebrew word, and then I'll leave you alone with the Hebrew, and we won't bother with Hebrew anymore, okay? Hebrew word for waters here is the word chamayim. you got to get that in there to be really good Hebrew. Um, chamayim. And the idea of chamayim is this is controllable waters. It's waters that's good for life. It's calm. It's still water. You can grow crops with it and drink it. So what is the Spirit of God doing? He's taking the chaotic to home, and the simple presence of God is calming it. It's bringing order to the chaos. That, that God's mere presence orders the chaos. This is the type of God that Genesis 1 is, is painting, that the Spirit is hovering over the surface and calming the to home. And that might seem really weird to us because that's not what we learn about in seventh grade science class, but let me take you back to those two stories I mentioned earlier, the, the story in Egypt. So the Egyptians believe that uh, their, their sun god, Ra, you guys know Ra, you heard, heard the power, sun god Ra, that sun god Ra would set sail every night or every day across the sky, and then he would go into the dark abyss. Where does the sun go at night? If you're an ancient Egyptian, you don't know. It goes into the dark abyss. And every night, Ra would have to go fight the chaos monster. And if Ra failed to fight the chaos monster and win, then the sun may not rise the next day. So they, better, they really better pray to Ra and hope the sun comes back up. Do you see how that is incredibly different from what Genesis 1 is saying about who God is? Or if you take the Babylonian story, that, that their chief deity, Marduk, has to go to war against the abyssal chaos monster, Tiamat, and they have to, he has to kill Tiamat in order to make this all happen. Is Genesis 1 portraying God at war with anything? Is God threatened by anything? Absolutely not. He's in complete control. He is perfect, without fault, all-powerful, all-present, and the mere presence of God calms the Tahom into Hamayim. 
This is the betrayal of God that Genesis 1 is starting to tell us this story of. And so as God is calming this, this water, he begins to interact with it and to organize it. And so what, is, what does he do? What's the first thing that God does in verse 3? Then God said. Does he go to war against chaos? No, he just speaks. Do you see the power portrayed in Genesis 1? This is what Genesis 1 is telling us about Yahweh. He's all-powerful. His mere presence calms chaos, and all he has to do is say something, and it happens. This is how powerful our God is. So here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to break down these six days. We're going to talk about them just, just a little bit, the means by which God creates and, and divides creation. Um, and, and then we're going to talk about what that means for us. So this is your chance that if you want to draw pictures or uh, fill in, however you want to do it, you're welcome to join with us. It's on the back of your bulletin. Um, but let's, let's kick off. Day one, verse three. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So this is your first picture. Here, here's the way David drew it. I'll, I'll show it to you. We just drew it like this. We wrote the word light, scribbled in some darkness. Where does the light come from? It has to be from God. There's nothing else. You, you have a watery abyss and darkness, and God says, let there be light. There's nothing to give light. It's just light from God. It's his glory, his majesty shining down. And this is a theme that the Bible's going to pick up on because in Revelation, when it's talking about the new heaven and new earth, this new godly kingdom, there is no more sun. There is only God. And where does light come from? God. It's a one for one. So the first thing God creates is, is light. And why, why does he do this? Well, to bring order. So God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. God speaks. He sheds his own light onto the dark waters, and he begins to orchestrate this routine system of light and dark, day and night. Do you know what we call this? Time. That there's a time method that's happening at this point. God orders creation into time. No longer is there just this dark abyss. There's now light upon creation and this ordered method of time measurement. And so the author says, there was evening and there was morning, the first day. And then he goes into verses 6 through 8. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse, separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. So the second one, God creates this, this is weird for us. Let me, let me give some explanation. Again, put yourself in the mind of an ancient person, right? You, you didn't take seventh grade science class. No one had launched any satellites into space. No one had been to the moon. You didn't think of it. All you got is you walk out to the ocean, and you watch as the sky seems to slope down and meet with the ocean, right? What color is the ocean? Blue. What color is the sky? Uh, it's nighttime. So you walk out at nighttime. What color is the ocean? Black. What color is the sky? So in ancient minds, what they pictured is that, well, if water is the only thing I can see, and it's the same color as up there, whatever's up there above whatever's holding it back must be water as well. And so if you can envision like a snow globe, that you take the snow globe and stick it underwater, right? And then there's water above it, and yeah, that, that's kind of the, the visual representation of how these people see the world. Uh, it, it's the same as the Egyptians imagining that Ra is setting sail through the sky. Why do they think that Ra is setting sail? Because they think there's water up there. So, so what the Hebrews are saying is there's this tahom, this watery depth. The Spirit of God comes and dwells on it, calms it to Hamayim. God speaks. There's light. He speaks again, and God separates. That things begin to divide up, and all of a sudden there's sea and sky. 
what's God doing? He's order, organizing the world. He's putting order into it so that it might sustain life. The sky is the solid dome holding back the waters. So he speaks. But the home split in half for him. He doesn't go to war against it. He isn't threatened by it. He just says split and the waters divide. By the way, do we see other times in Scripture where God divides waters? Absolutely. This is what God has the power of doing. This is why Hebrews can look back and say, of course God split the waters at the Red Sea. It's easy for him. He split the entire universe. Like, that's nothing that our God can't do. This is how powerful our God is. And the chaos of the, the chaos waters of Genesis 1-2 finds itself being ordered. God brings life by bringing order to chaos. Day three, that God establishes the land. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. Let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of water he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. Now, if you'll notice, 11 adds the word then. So, so what, is this still day three? Yes. God adds a little bonus creation to day three. This is significant. I'm going to parallel it and, sh and show it to you. But what's the bonus creation on day three? Plants, that he's going to grow plants. So God brings out the land, and then he grows plants on the land. There's two things that happen on day three. So here's, here's the picture that David used for that one. So uh, you can draw it how you want, but he brings land out of the water, and then he puts plants down in this kind of little bonus idea. So let's, let's take a break. How you doing? Think about this in terms of God bringing order to chaos. What begins with this dark, abyssal, chaos waters has now been calmed. It's been enlightened in that God brings light to it. It's been rightfully divided. Why? Because, or so that what was once chaotic might, might now allow for life. So you have all the basic necessities of life at play. You have time and air and water and land and, and plants. God has laid the framework in which you and I can live. He's built the house. Now, a lot of times when we think about Genesis 1 and creation, we want to think about creation in this idea of, of like, how did the molecules all fit together? It's almost like, how were the bricks laid to build the house? And that's an element to it, and I think Genesis 1 communicates that element. But there's another side of organizing and building a house that's a little bit more detailed than that, and that's the architecture of it. How are we going to do this layout? Where's the walls going to go? What, what room will be the bathroom, and what room will be the bedroom, and what room will be the living room? This is what God's doing. He's laying this all out. He's building the framework. Days four through six. It's a horrible illustration, but it'll work. It's time to move in the furniture, okay? That, that's what we're going to work, work with, with all of this. And here's what I want you to see. Days four through six are the explanations to what inhabits day one through three. Days, days four through six are what inhabits days one through three. So, so sorry, we're going to go quickly through these, by the way. We're just going get, to get through these pretty fast. So bear with me. Day four, um, verse, verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for seasons and days and years. So what does he do? He creates the sun and the moon and the stars to inhabit the light, to give reason and purpose to the light. That God assigns inhabitants to his light, which he had already created. And then he commissions those inhabitants to do what? to bring more order to day and time, to bring seasons and all this other stuff out of it. God is continually ordering his creation through his power. And then day five, what does he make? Well, the birds and the fish. 
that inhabit the sky and the water. Huh. It's the inhabitants of the sky and land, created, or the sky and water created on day two. And then we get to day five, or day six, and God creates land animals to inhabit the land. And we get a little bonus creation. Remember verse 11, that word then? How on day three you get a bonus creation of land, then the plants? On day six, he does the creation of all the wild beasts and animals. But then we get this extra additional then God creates. And what's the bonus creation this time? It's us, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. According to our likeness, they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And we get the first poetry of the Bible. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God creates humanity unlike anything else he's made in all of creation. The entire universe made, nothing is like this creation. And if you go through, you can track all these crazy awesome things that when God makes the light, he calls it good. When God makes the land, verse 10, he calls it good. When he makes the plants, verse 12, he calls it good. When he makes the sun, moon, and stars, in verse 18, he calls it good. When he makes the fish and the birds, in verse 21, he calls it good. When he makes the land creatures, in verse 25, he calls it good. But it's only after the creation of man that he says something different. He says it's very good. There's something significant about this final creation. There's something different about you and I. There's something more that God has done through the creation of mankind made in his image. And it's with that creation that we get to chapter 2. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. God was done. It was perfect and finished. And on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy for on it he rested from all the work of his creation. Why, why does God rest on the seventh day? Because he's finished. It's complete. The cap's been placed on. Creation is perfect the way God intended creation to be. Because God had given life by bringing order to the chaos. So God rests. Chapter 2 goes in and it gives a detailed explanation of what it means when God creates Adam and Eve. Zooms into the garden and tells the story more particularly. And then we get to chapter 3. Many of you probably know what happens in chapter 3, but I'll, I'll give just a quick little thing. This is where we'll, we'll close out. Chapter 3, God has set up Adam and Eve in this perfect order. It's all set up. Things are running as they were intended to and supposed to run, but, but the tempter shows up in the form of a serpent. And do you know what his very first thing he says in chapter 3 is? Did God really say? How did God create the world? He spoke. He said. And now Satan's going to come in, and what's the temptation? It's to upset the order that God has established. Is God really that powerful? Did he really say? Is that really who God is? And then he's going to go in, and he's going to create a little bit more in verse 5. Try to upset the order some more. In fact... God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. What is Satan's temptation? To overthrow the order that God has set in place. Hey, you will have your eyes. You can be God. You can choose right and wrong for yourself. You can have that freedom, Eve. All you got to do is disobey. And Satan's whole attempt is to bring disorder to God's ordered 
to bring disorder to what God has set up in order. You see, to, to this day, Satan's desire for you, Satan's desire for me, Satan's desire for this church, for this town, for this world is to create chaos, to upset order. He wants to create chaos in your families. He wants to create chaos at First Baptist. He wants to create chaos in your life and my life. And how's the best way for him to do that? To get us to sin. Because does sin create chaos? We've all felt it. We all know it to be true. That I have dealt with chaos after chaos in my life because of my own selfishness and my own sin. That I create problems for myself on a daily basis basis because I'm selfish and want to upset the order that God has set in place. So what does God do? What does God do about it? Well, he brings order. If you go through chapter 3 and begin to read, you'll, you'll see that God makes the first sacrificial animal to clothe Adam and Eve. He goes and he kills an animal instead of killing them to bring order to it. He curses the serpent. By the way, he doesn't go to war with it. He's not threatened. He curses and he allows for the consequences of sin to take root, but he makes a promise in chapter 3, verse 15. A promise you probably know and, and love very well. I'll put hostility between the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. God continues to give life to those made in his image by providing order. This time, not just through organization, but through loving Adam and Eve despite their sin through forgiving them and giving them another chance, and through giving them hope that a day would come that Satan would be defeated once and for all. What is all this pointing to? Jesus. It's a direct point to the gospel. Genesis 1 is setting the framework for Jesus, that Jesus would come and bring order back to the world by crushing sin once and for all. That if you would just put your faith in Christ, your sin could be forgiven, cast out as far as the east is from the west, and you could receive the grace in order to overcome your chaos because that's how God brings life. So often we're just like, yeah, God's a life-giving God, and we write it at that. No, no, no. God's a life-giving God because he's conquered death sin. He's conquered life-taking sin. Oh, oh, and by the way, you know, that God gives life through loving Adam and Eve. Do we ever see Jesus love people? That God gives Adam and Eve life by forgiving them and giving them another chance? Do we ever see Jesus forgiving people? That, that God would uh, give them hope through this promise? Do we see Jesus giving people hope? This is what we'll be talking about the next three weeks after this. But for now, here, here's what I want you to understand. God gives life by bringing order to chaos. You and I both know the chaos sin brings to our lives. Our own sin, other people's sin, sin of people that have no relationship to us that we just have to deal with, that we're stuck in. We've experienced broken relationships, frustrating situations, hurt feelings both because of our own actions and because of those around us. But can I just say that God wants to bring order to your life? And not only does God want to bring order to your life, he can bring order. It's the mere presence of the Spirit turning the Tahome into the Hamayim, that God has that ability just in his own presence. But what that demands from you is that you come faithfully lay your life down to him. 
to say, God, I can do nothing with this but create chaos. I need your help. Would you come into life, my life, bring me forgiveness and fill me with your spirit? And the promise of the gospel is that anyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, God will save you, set you free, redeem you. And it's the promise that started in Genesis chapter 1. It's available to you right here, right now. We're going to have a time of invitation. Surely you can come talk to me. I, I would love to talk to you about that. But let me say this one last thing, and here's where we'll close. If that is how God is a life-giving God, what does that mean for us to be a life-giving church? If God is life-giving because he brings life and he brings order to chaos, what does that mean for First Baptist to be a life-giving church? It means our role as Jesus' representation to Portalis is to bring order to the chaos of Portalis. Is Portalis in chaos? Absolutely, guys. And we're getting ready for re-elections and mayors and city council, and that's awesome. I'm grateful for the leadership we have. But it doesn't matter who's in leadership over Portalis. Guess what Portalis will always be in without Jesus? Utter chaos. There will be drug addiction. There will be family division. There will be brokenness abounding. Poverty and hunger, people taking advantage of one another because this is what sin does. What is the only hope Portalis has? Jesus. This is how we bring life to Portalis. We go and tell the chaotic world out there that the God of the universe exists, exists and wants to bring order to them and love them. That this design, that by design, requires us to go out of these walls and do that. If we want to be a life-giving church, it cannot just happen in this room. It has to go beyond this room. And watch, as God brings order to chaos, the types of stories that we'll get to share. Because Brittany's is just one of 100,000 that can happen. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate our God-giving life. Father God, we're grateful that you are a life-giving God, that from the beginning your mere presence is calming the storm, is calming chaos, that, that you are in absolute, complete control. You're not going to war against Satan in some way that you're worried about being defeated. God, the only thing you have to do is speak, and it happens. God, we see your power on display, and we ask that you would show us that power all the more as we seek to faithfully submit our lives to you. And God, if there's anyone in here that hasn't given their life to you yet, that you would give them the heart and the ability to come forward this morning and just ask that you would bring order to the chaos. We ask that in your name, the name of Christ.